The text for the sermon this morning is taken from the letter of James, James the brother of Christ, chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. James 4, 11 and 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against the brother... Or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, our text this morning addresses the sin of slander, or as the ESV has it, the sin of speaking evil against another. And we have to admit that that's a sin that's common to all. It's important to point this out. Because we often have a tendency to overlook sins that are very common to each of us. But the sins of slander and gossip and judgmentalism are very common. Also amongst saints. I think the children among us understand that already. Often children at school experience the effects of these kinds of sins when Other kids at school say things about you that aren't true. And it's quick for children to, or it's common for children to be quick in their judgment, isn't it? We will hear or notice something about a classmate or someone else in school, and you only have to hear it once, and you're ready to make up your mind about that person. That's actually a sign of immaturity to think and act that way. But if we're honest with ourselves, we have to agree that in one way or another, we all have this immature and sinful attitude. In fact, we have this tendency more than what we would like to admit to a greater degree. And in light of that, it's good to listen to what God's word has to say on this subject. So I've summarized our The sermon under the following theme, do not speak evil of one another. And we will see that our text shows us a sad, sinful pattern, but also a divine directive. It's clear from Scripture, congregation, that the Lord takes the sin of slander very seriously. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, God's word equates this sin with the sins of sexual immorality, greed, idolatry, drunkenness, and fraud. Paul writes there, we ought not to associate with a brother or sister who is guilty of such sins, including the sin of slander. Other English translations use the term reviler or verbal abuser. There's a hint of violence in those terms, isn't there? And we read that in Psalm 140, the psalmist puts the sin of slander right alongside the sin of the violent man. And in verse 
Or in verse 11, he said, Let not the slanderer be established in the land. Let evil hunt down the violent man speedily. So he puts those two parallel. Why would scripture do that? Well, that's because a slanderer does violence to someone's reputation. Slandering someone or speaking evil against another can kill a person's good reputation and standing. That's what James is also writing about in this chapter. And he makes an interesting argument for prohibiting slander. He describes the sad pattern that leads from slander to judging. Verse 11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against the brother judges his brother, speaking evil against the law and judging the law. And the point being made here is that there is a way to speak to someone or against someone or about someone without being judgmental. But James is writing about those who speak in a judging manner. He's implying that speaking evil and judging are virtually synonymous. He's writing that slander and judging are almost always inseparable because slander leads to judging. What does this mean? Usually when we speak against someone, it's because we believe they have done something wrong. Either they have failed to do what they should have, or they have done what they should not have done. But the person who slanders is someone who goes beyond the bounds of what is correct for a follower of Christ to do. And so, for that reason, it's also important to note what this text is not saying. This text is not calling us not to be critical. We are not forbidden to come up with well-informed and well-thought-out opinions, both on teachings and on actions. Sometimes we hear in Christian circles that we're not even allowed to do that. And people refer to what Jesus says in Matthew 7, where he says, judge not that you be not judged. And people use that text as a basis for tolerating and accepting sinful behavior or as an excuse not to form an opinion about actions or behaviors. But the point James is making here does not give us permission to abrogate our responsibility when it comes to pointing out errors and faults. Neither can we use this text or Jesus' words as an excuse not to use church discipline. The Bible clearly teaches that we must judge. However, we must do so without partiality. We must judge honestly and fairly. We must not bear false witness. And we may not condemn or join in condemning anyone rashly and unheard, as we confess in Lord's Day 43. And that, congregation, this is precisely the issue that is being addressed here in our text. This is what James is talking about. He is condemning judgmentalism, judging someone rashly and unheard, forming our opinions about someone without having all the facts, making a judgment based on our own faulty logic or legalistic theology. The Pharisees were really good at that, weren't they? But we easily fall into the same trap. And when you are legalistic, you are quite ready to condemn others purely by what you observe from a distance or on the basis of secondhand information. That's what a slanderer does. A slanderer judges from a distance. In the court of law, judgment is passed only when the judge hears all the facts, when both sides have been heard. 
But the great sin that happens also so often in the church is that we make a judgment call after we've only heard one side of the story. Or because we think that we know all that we need to know. And in Reformed circles, the danger is also great that we stand in judgment over those whom we think are less Reformed than we are. We're quick to pronounce judgment before all the facts are heard. After all, it's, it's quite convenient when you can do that, isn't it? If you are able to judge others before you have all the facts, or if you can judge others from a distance, it's, it's easy for you to justify your own preconceived notions. Maybe you know of a family where one or two children have left the church and you've already made up your mind about what kind of parents they must have. Or you watch parents who have a tough time containing their fidgety kids in church and you're ready to make a judgment call from ten benches behind them. But you stand at a distance and judge when you do that. We are quick to judge and quick to condemn even But are we prepared to encourage and to help instead? Do you realize, congregation, that then when we are judging and condemning people rashly and unheard, we are actually writing people off? And we're doing that in the church. For brothers and sisters whom we confess Christ has also died for. Let me give another example. We're accustomed to having the organ accompany our singing and the piano too, but how much judgmentalism has not occurred over the years, also in our churches, when it comes to allowing people to have an opinion about which musical instrument we should be using in our church services. The early church had neither an organ nor a piano, and they managed to worship the Lord. And we may have a preference and even a well-argued preference But we are not to judge or condemn others because of their preference. And often, we do that, don't we? We judge others because they don't have the same preference as we do. And then we think that maybe their hearts aren't in the right place. And that's the sad pattern that James is pointing out to us. The pattern is that we jump to conclusions. And that we jump to judgments without having all the facts. But then we not only wrongly judge their actions, but we also wrongly judge their heart. And that's clearly illustrated in in 1 Samuel 17. We read there the account of David coming to the army of Saul. And the three oldest sons of Jesse were there too. and, and, and David was told to take some food to his brothers, and he sees what's going on there, and he arrives at the camp, and he finds out there's been no, no battle. And he's asked, what's going on? And he finds out this Philistine is insulting God's people. And so he starts asking questions. What, what are we doing about this Philistine, whom David calls a reproach to Israel? And then David's older brother, Eliab, he hears what David is Asking, And he gets really angry with David. And he says, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. You have come down to see the battle. 
And David could have said, of course, well, what battle? Because there hadn't been a battle. But instead, he says, what have I done? All, I, all I've done is ask a few questions. And you are judging my heart. Right? Eliab jumps to this judgment. You have a wicked heart. And this is the kind of thing that James is addressing. Because we also are quick to jump to wrong conclusions. And we have to ask, of course, why did Eliab address David in this manner? What was he thinking? Well, it's because he had no humility. And his pride was hurt because his little brother had more courage than the entire army of Saul put, all put together. And so he judges his brother's heart because his own heart wasn't in the right place. You see, when we engage in superficial and cruel and misguided judgments, we are judging not according to the law of God, but from a place of self-righteousness. And when we do that, we are speaking against the law and judging the law. We're saying simply, the law doesn't apply to me. When we speak evil against another, we not only judge that person, but we stand in judgment against the law. Now, what, what does James mean with this phrase? Well, there's a few hints in the text that help us. He is referring simply to the Old Testament law. You could say as summarized in the Ten Commandments. In Leviticus chapter 19, for example, the law says you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. And that verse comes in a context. It comes right after the command, in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. And right before the command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And if you look at James chapter 2, verse 8, you will note that James singles out this love command, and he calls it the royal law. The royal law. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you will love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, if you speak against your brother and judge him rashly, you are actually speaking against the law and judging it. Instead of seeing how the law applies to me and keeping it, I end up sitting in judgment on it. I become a law to myself. It really is the sin of pride that James is addressing here. It reminds us of what he writes in 4 verse 6 and 4 verse 10. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so we must all humble ourselves, be honest with ourselves, admit that our own heart is wretched, honestly admit that we deserve God's just judgment. We deserve to be locked up in jail and the key thrown away. And if we have that kind of an attitude towards ourselves, we will be much less inclined to judge one another rashly and unheard. But if we deceive our own ourselves about our own position before God, if we refuse to humble ourselves, then we find ourselves accused by this, this passage, don't we? And so the conclusion is that if we speak evil of our neighbor unjustly, we fail to keep the law of love. And in failing to keep the law, we also stand in judgment over against the law. We deny the authority of the law because the law says love your neighbor as yourself. That is the sad sinful pattern that is laid out in this passage. And well what must we do instead congregation? 
Well, the Holy Spirit also gives us a divine directive here. One author puts it this way, knowing your own failings should make you much more hesitant to express criticism of others. The man who knows himself learns to be increasingly silent before pointing out the faults of others. Again, congregation, Scripture is not telling us that we have to have a soft-on-sin kind of attitude, but an attitude of tenderness and compassion, a Christ-like attitude toward a fellow sinner, because you know that in the final analysis, Christ is the judge of all, including your judge, and you are not the judge in the final analysis. That's what James has in mind in verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He is who is able to save and to destroy. The Bible is very clear that God is the ultimate judge. Deuteronomy 32. God speaking to his people says, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. There is only one lawgiver. And in our text, James reminds us that there is only one who issues laws that last forever. In our society, we changed our laws according to our customs and as society changes, but there is only one whose laws are permanent, always valid, and of eternal significance. That doesn't mean, of course, that there's no room for human legislation. God has appointed civil government for that purpose. But the foundation of all human law is the law of God. And human courts, yes, they often get it wrong. But there is one who always gets it right. The judge of all the earth will always do right. God is the only one who understands the heart and the motives of the heart with absolute accuracy. He is the only one whose judgment has absolute authority and whose punishment is absolutely fair. God alone. And he is the one we should fear, congregation. The Lord Jesus says, do not fear those who can kill the body, but fear the one who has power to throw you into hell. That is the real judgment that we should fear. Again, there's, there's human error in law and in the execution of justice. Many things on earth are not done rightly, but all things will one day be put right. And anyone who thinks that he has managed to get away with sin in his life may well find himself in for a big shock when one day he faces the judge of all the earth. But those who have been punished unjustly will also find themselves before this judge, and they will be vindicated. And that's why it's so important, congregation, that we take this seriously, lest we take God from his throne and we place ourselves on his, in his place. Sometimes we get impatient with God, for not making sure that justice is done correctly in our lives or that it doesn't happen soon enough according to our standards. Again, it needs to be said, James does not prohibit us from the proper and necessary discrimination that we must exercise in our lives and also in our family and in our church family 
And this passage doesn't forbid the church from excluding people from the fellowship of the saints. If you read through the letter of James, you see how often he rebukes sin. But at the same time, what James is trying to make clear is that we may not take upon ourselves the prerogative that God has for himself. Yes, it's true we must judge someone's actions. We even have to warn people who seem hypocritical. But we may never rashly judge someone's motives or their heart or just write people off as a lost cause. Who are you to judge your neighbor? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4 that it is God who judges. Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Congregation, the judgment of the universe is in safe hands. So be careful what you say and be careful how you judge. Our judgment is not always necessary. And it must never be rash. It must never be presumptuous. It is a highly presumptuous thing that we should only demand to be heard. And to assume the judge's place. Or to rush unfounded into unwarranted judgments on our own. As if we are always able to judge correctly. That sort of thing happens all too often. In our relatively small church community, we sometimes hear many details about what's going on in the lives of other people. Or even in the congregation down the road. Or even south of the 401. And very quickly, we have a judgment ready on what we hear. And it affects what we say to one another and how we think about one another and how we treat one another and about how we share the stories that we hear. But be careful what you repeat. The Bible says the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. How often doesn't it happen that we have made a judgment rashly and then we find out later that it wasn't true at all? We've all been guilty of this very thing, haven't we? It happens in school and it happens in our families and in the church family. And if we are acting this way, then we have to ask ourselves if we have understood, truly understood the nature of grace. Think back to the parable of the merciful master who forgave his servant 10,000 talents, an impossible debt to pay. And he was given so much grace, but then he failed to show mercy to someone who owed him one day's wage. And in failing to show grace, he revealed that he had not understood and not even accepted the grace and the mercy of his own master. Brothers and sisters, Boys and girls, we have been given so much grace. Jesus Christ was slandered horribly, and he bore that slander for you and for me. Even though he spoke the truth, and nothing but the truth, he was accused of being a slanderer and a liar, and he was condemned for it. And so he endured it for our sake. 
even though it brought him to the cross. And if this is the grace that you have received, will you not share that with others? Will you not extend that to others? So where should we begin? Let's make sure that it begins in our homes. Husbands and wives, do we cut each other a lot of slack? Or are we quick to rush to judgment when something happens that we don't appreciate? Parents, are your children afraid to come and talk to you about anything? If they come to you and confess a sin or tell you that they are struggling with something, what is your attitude? Do you first judge and condemn? Or do you extend a gracious hand of love? Do you model the grace of God in your life and in your families? Fathers, do we have the courage to ask our children for forgiveness after we have been harsh with them? Mothers, do we have the courage to ask our children for forgiveness if we have judged them rashly? If you want your children to grow up understanding the grace of God, then you must also model God's grace in your home. And that analogy extends to the family of God. If we want others to understand the grace of God, we have to model God's grace in our lives. So we are called to image Christ because we are called Christians, Christ followers. So the question we should ask ourselves, what do others see in me? Does my family see Christ in me? Do my friends, boys and girls, do my friends see Christ in me? Do our neighbors see Christ in us? Let's make it our goal to truly image Christ so that his name and his reputation is held in high honor. Amen.